Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25. We're going to be covering Numbers 25 and 31 this morning. Last week, we talked about the story of Balaam and how God would keep his covenant promise to bring the children of Israel into the promised land, even if he had to use a pagan idolater like Balaam to do it. God refused to let Balaam curse Israel, but Balaam wanted the reward, so he proposed another way to destroy Israel. More on that later. Let's begin by reading chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So, the, so Israel yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Let's pray. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment as we consider this very difficult passage of your word. Show it how it applies to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Israel had settled in Shittim, which was about 10 miles southeast of Jericho, across the Jordan River. Now, after all the miracles God had done, we might ask how the Israelites could possibly be so stupid as to be seduced into Baal worship. The answer is that I doubt the women of Moab just came across the border and said, hey, big boy, want to have sex? I'm sure they were much more subtle than that. My guess is that it began innocently enough when the women of Moab began making friends with the Israelite men. Making friends would be a good thing, right? I mean, it promotes peace and good international relations. But soon these nice and undoubtedly pretty women were inviting the men to have a great steak dinner with them. The men were so sick of manna, that sounded great. Of course, this dinner would be part of a religious ceremony involving sacrifices to Baal, but they could just pretend to worship Baal to get the meal, right? Not only that, but the religious ceremony would also involve having sex with the women. Now, we have to remember that the nations around Israel did not view these cultic sexual relations as a sinful thing. In fact, it was a, the pagan consensus that having sex in their sacred spaces was the way to sexually arouse the gods to fertilize the crops. It was considered the path to prosperity and economic security. And besides, everyone was doing it. So the Israelites were seduced by the immoral culture of the surrounding world, just like so many apostate churches today have been seduced by our culture. There are churches today that actually support the killing of unborn babies, and they promote and celebrate behaviors that God calls abominable. Some churches even march in gay, bisexual, and transgender parades. Many of the Israelites not only pretended to worship Baal, they even yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor as it says in verse 3. In other words, they converted from Yahweh worship to Baal worship. It's hard to imagine a more blatant affront to God, and he was angry. So the Lord told Moses to take the leaders 
of those who had yoked themselves to Baal and have them executed. I said it was hard to imagine a more blatant affront to God, and yet the worst was yet to come. Verse 6 says, Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman, right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is the tabernacle. Now remember that the tabernacle was just a tent, divided into two sections. The holy place, where only the priests could enter, and the most holy place, or holy of holies, where only the high priest could enter once a year. This tent was surrounded by a cloth fence to create an outer courtyard. Moses and others were weeping at the entrance to the tabernacle courtyard over this horrendous sinful apostasy. When all of a sudden, one of the Israelites paraded one of the pagan women through the gate into the courtyard and right into the holy place of the tabernacle. That man was not a priest, so he was not authorized to be there. And the woman was not even an Israelite. In fact, verse 18 says she was the daughter of a Midianite chieftain. I can't help wondering if she had been sent to the Israelites specifically to lead the Midianite women to destroy Israel. Now, I doubt anyone ever had re even remotely considered the possibility of such a horrendous affront to God. While everyone was apparently standing around in shock over what had just happened, Phineas responded. Verses 7 and 8 say, When Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of, the, of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Now, many scholars believe that by the time Phineas entered the tent, the man and woman were already on the floor engaging in sex in the holy place of the tabernacle. Phineas rammed his spear right through the man's back and into the woman's stomach, killing them both. Now, it's important to note that what Phineas did was not just the actions of an out-of-control zealot. At least three times, the law of Moses specifically said that any unauthorized person who approached the sanctuary of the tabernacle was to be executed. And the Israelite man undoubtedly knew that. Phineas certainly knew it because he was a priest, the son of the high priest and grandson of Aaron. Not only that, but according to 1 Chronicles 9, Phineas was the chief gatekeeper of the tabernacle. In other words, he was apparently in charge of tabernacle security. So he did what the law of Moses required him to do. If you ever go on a White House tour and you suddenly bolt away from the group toward the Oval Office, the Secret Service is authorized to kill you. Phineas was just doing his duty like the Tabernacle Secret Service. Chapter 26 through 30 talk about a census and more laws and regulations, and our story doesn't pick up again until chapter 31. So please turn to chapter 31. Let's read chapter 31, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. Now, back in chapter 25, 
it said that the Moabite women were engaged in immorality with the Israelites. But here in chapter 31, it says to take vengeance on the Midianites. Why is that? Well, Moab was a specific group of people located in a specific region, like a country. The Midianites were a nomadic people scattered among several countries. So my guess is that King Balak of Moab conspired with a Midianite chieftain in Moab who sent his daughter to lead Midianite women to seduce and destroy Israel. So Moses sent men out from every tribe of Israel. And in verse 7, it says, They fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. So Israel killed all the Midianite men in that region. But according to verses 9 to 12, they took the women and children captive, along with all their flocks and herds. Now, you would think that Moses would be happy about this great victory. But the text surprises us when in verse 15, Moses asked, Have you allowed all the women to live? In verse 16, Moses adds, They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. For the first time in the book, it is now revealed that the whole idea of using sexual idolatry to destroy Israel from within was Balaam's idea. Balaam must have thought, if I can't curse Israel directly, maybe I can get my reward money by showing King Balak how he can destroy Israel from within. 2 Peter 2.15 talks about how Balaam loved the wages of wickedness. But Paul says the wages of sin is death. And in verse 8, we find out that Balaam was executed. So Moses was not pleased that the women were allowed to live because they were the ones who brought this disaster on Israel in the first place. In verses 17 and 18, Moses said, Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with a man. Sounds positively savage, doesn't it? We'll come back to this in a minute. The book of Numbers ends with the children of Israel camped across the river from Jericho. The book of Deuteronomy, which comes next, mostly consists of the speeches given by Moses before he dies. According to the last chapter in Deuteronomy, after his speeches, Moses goes up to the top of Mount Nebo, and God allows him to look over into the promised land just before he dies on that mountain. Joshua then becomes the leader of Israel, and what comes next is Joshua's conquest of the promised land. Now, before we talk about lessons this morning, we need to address the elephant in this room. I mean, this is a story about how God commands Moses to take vengeance against the Midianites and to kill all the men, boys and women, except the virgins, who Israel can keep for themselves. How much more savage could you be, right? Non-Christians often use stories like this to mock Christians. So we need to talk about this. And I will admit right up front that this is not an easy issue to resolve. But let me give you a few things to think about. First, before we get too judgmental against the Israelites, we should at least try to evaluate those stories through ancient eyes, rather than trying to force our modern culture back on theirs. 
Although Israel had done nothing to provoke Moab, Moab tried to destroy Israel non-militarily from within. Imagine if China tried to destroy America non-militarily by launching a cyber attack that took down our electrical power grid. After a few weeks without electricity, no computers, no heat or air conditioning, no refrigeration, no electric stoves or microwaves, no banking, no cash registers in the stores, no working gas pumps. After a few weeks of that, I suspect that the vast majority of Americans would think that a massive military attack on China would be justified, even if it killed innocent civilians. From Israel's perspective, what the Midianites did was an attempt to destroy Israel from within. It was a matter of national security and survival. Second, Israel killed the men because they were warriors and could strike back. Just like if we went to war, we would take out another country's military first so they couldn't strike back. Israel took out the boys because they were also warriors. There are some places, even in the world today, that teach little children how to use guns to kill their enemies. We can't look at ancient cultures as if they were just another version of Mayberry. Israel took out the women because they were the ones actively involved in the seduction. They were like spies. And even today, countries wouldn't hesitate to execute spies, even if they are female. Israel saved the virgins from death because they were obviously not involved in the sexual plot to destroy Israel. And girls didn't usually grow up to be warriors. But what do you do with them? Their parents are casualties of war. So do you kill them too? Or do you leave them in the desert to starve or die of thirst or be torn apart by wild animals? As often in war, there were no good solutions. What Israel did was to bring them into their own families as their children or wives. But they were not to be treated as slaves. In Deuteronomy 21, the law of Moses specifically prohibited treating, treating them like slaves. Now, I know very well that these arguments would not persuade unbelievers. In fact, there are no arguments that are likely to persuade unbelievers. Paul says the gospel is foolishness to those who don't believe, and I think that applies to large parts of the Bible as well. What we think about these passages is often largely a matter of our perspective. For example, those who lived in Japan in World War II had a much different perspective on Pearl Harbor than Americans did. <clears throat> From a Japanese perspective, Japan was running out of oil, and the American military in Pearl Harbor stood in their way of getting oil. To the Japanese, oil was a matter of national security, so Pearl Harbor had to go. From their perspective, the attack was justified. Americans, of course, viewed the attack much differently. When James Doolittle and his bombers responded to Pearl Harbor attack by bombing Tokyo, Americans didn't much care that innocent women and children died. This was war, and Japan started it. From an American perspective, the attack on Tokyo was justified. From an ancient Jewish and Christian perspective, 
the enemies of God and of Israel had attacked Israel and undermined their national security. Their intent was to destroy God's people. Bible-believing Christians tend to see Israel's response as justified, even if innocent people were tragically killed in the process. Unfortunately, in a fallen world, that is what happens in war. Things are a little different in the book of Joshua, however, because then Israel becomes the aggressor. But you have to realize that the Canaanites were not like 1950s families on Dick Van Dyke or the Andy Griffith shows. From a Jewish and Christian perspective, Canaanites were unalterably sexually obsessed and depraved. God had given them 400 years to repent of their perversions. <clears throat> they would practice incest or have sex with their neighbor's wives or husbands or with people of the same sex or with animals or even with a mother and daughter at the same time. They would even practice child sacrifice. Now, if you were a Canaanite or a Midianite, and that was your culture, you thought all that was perfectly okay. So when Israel attacked you, your perspective would be that the Israelites were the bad guys and that God of Israel was evil. Folks, the more people today become like Canaanites, the more they will see these stories in the Bible as evil. How you react to the stories in the Bible depends on your perspective and might just show whose side you're on. Unfortunately, even pastors today have been seduced by our culture, just like the Israelites were. Some pastors have adopted a human-centered theology and came up with their own definitions of what love is. They decided that it wouldn't be loving for a God to kill all the Midianites or Canaanites, so they say the Bible was wrong to attribute that violence to God. When you start treating the Bible like this, you can use it to justify absolutely any behavior. And that is exactly what they do. Contrary to these preachers, God's judgment on sin and his destruction of sinners is not in contradiction to the biblical teaching of God's love. John 3.16 says that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Romans 5.8 says, God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is expressed in the fact that he gave his son over to die on a Roman cross to deliver us from the wrath that will come on those who refuse to repent of their rebellion. That's what the Bible means by God's love. We are not free to redefine it any old way we want. Unfortunately, God's commands to kill Midianite and Canaanites have been used by various groups or nations as excuses to kill their enemies or expand their territory. But that is twisting the word of God. First, Israel was a unique theocratic kingdom. It is the only nation in the history of the world in which God was present in a unique way in the Ark of the Covenant. And second, God's war commands were only to one, were to one and only one nation, Israel. And those commands involved a very specific and small geographical location. God never even gave Israel a blank check to randomly attack their enemies or to build an empire. Therefore, you cannot legitimately take God's war commands to Israel and use them as justification for any nation 
to conquer someone else. It's apples and oranges. That doesn't mean all war is wrong. I think World War II, for example, was a just war. But it does mean that you can't legitimately use Israel's attacks on Midianites or Canaanites to justify imperialism. So are there any practical applications to this story? I'll just suggest two. Chapter 25, verse 3, says that many of the Israelites yoked themselves to Baal. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. He may have been thinking of the Israelites who yoked themselves to Baal, thereby undermining their commitment to God. What Paul says about not being yoked together with unbelievers is not a suggestion. It is a command from God. If you're thinking of marrying someone who is not a believer, you don't have to ask if it's God's will. It is not. It is rebellion against God. God doesn't say this to destroy your life or make you unhappy. Whether you realize it or not, he says it to protect you and to keep you from falling. And second, although we cannot use Israel's attack on the Midianites or Canaanites as justification for modern conquest, the New Testament does seem to apply it to spiritual warfare. As Christians, our warfare is ultimately against Satan and the powers of darkness. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, Paul writes about Christians, saying, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, Paul writes about wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Folks, I'm not one who sees demons around every corner or under every bush, but I look at the number of families in our church that are going through significant health issues or emotional issues or family issues, and I can't help wondering if we are under spiritual attack. Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God and to stand firm in the faith. Determine with the Holy Spirit's help to stand firm and be faithful to God regardless of the circumstances or attacks, knowing, as Peter teaches, that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more genuine, more, more precious than gold, the tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus comes back. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for your people gathered here this morning who are in a spiritual warfare, for those who are facing strong trials. I pray that you would answer their prayers in your will and meet their needs. Give them wisdom to know how to respond to the trials in ways that will be pleasing to you. Give them strength to endure. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.